Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we return to the critical metals and how collectively and individually their fortunes are affected by geopolitics, supply chains, and price volatility. To tell that story, we're focusing on three, neodymium, gallium, and hafnium. Our guest is Eli Saklatvala, head of non-ferrous pricing at Argus, the leading price reporting agency headquartered in London and operating since the 1970s. Also, on February 22nd in London, we have our latest HC Insider podcast live event, this time hosted by Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. We'll be discussing the trading future of critical metals. Tickets are free but limited, so please RSVP. I'll put the links in the show notes if you wish to attend. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ellie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. We're talking in specifics around three critical minerals and using that as a bit of a lens to, to put a spotlight on some of the broader challenges this whole sector faces, as well as some of the opportunities driven by the energy transition and digitization. So we're going to start with neodymium. Can you tell us what that is and why it's important in the context of the modern economy? Sure, yes. So neodymium is essentially one of the rare earth elements, of which there are around 17 in total. So it's typically found uh, lurking in the Earth's crust within other minerals like monazite and basnazite. And it feeds into all sorts of industries, some of which are very traditional and long-standing, uh, and some of which are very forward-looking, which is why its profile is really increasing at the moment. So you'll find ne- neodymium used in glassmaking, uh, lots of consumer electronics, military technology, and of course, magnets. And it's really those magnets that are making neodymium and several other rare earths a really hot topic at the moment for investors and governments as well. Those rare earth magnets are essentially very, very powerful. They're several times stronger than a traditional magnet. And that propulsion boost is really critical for making offshore wind turbines and electric vehicles. If you look at a battery-driven EV, for example, uh, it's really getting its propulsion from an electric motor rather than a traditional internal combustion engine. Uh, and so that motor needs to be as powerful and efficient as possible, partly to lift a bit of pressure off uh, the battery and maximize the battery life as well. So we see these rare earth magnets as being really crucial to delivering the energy transition and the modern world. Neodymium is one of the central elements within that equation, meaning future demand is just going to go up and up. And before we talk about where the supply chain is and who has the, the grip on it, which I, I imagine listeners can, can guess given our previous episodes, how is actually neodymium mined and refined and, and converted and processed into these magnets or other uses? Yeah, well, it's got a really complicated supply chain. I mean, I think all of the minor metals and uh, you know the non-ferrous world in general, we are used to these uh, rather convoluted processing chains. But for rare earths, it can be particularly complicated. We find rare earth elements in their raw form in a lot of different parts of the world, whether that's Australia, Europe, Africa, the Americas. But extracting them from the ground can be enormously difficult, in part because of the, the mineralogy of rare earth deposits. It's unusually complex and diverse. 
And then if we look at the subsequent processing stages, they can be very polluting and very costly as well. So it's become a supply chain that is very heavily dominated by China, particularly for the midstream and downstream processes. And uh, essentially, you're taking ores out of the ground, and then they've got to go through various processes, uh, often hydrometallurgical. They've got to go through a separation process, often into oxides, metals. From there, they get turned into alloys. Then you get the magnets. And then hopefully, as we start evolving into a circular economy, you'll start seeing some of that magnet scrap come back into the supply chain for the, uh, you know, the secondary rotation. But it is an unusually complicated and costly supply chain to develop and to operate. Yeah. And, and neodymium is sort of the, the poster child for the, the dominance of China in the supply chains of many of these critical metals. And you've highlighted the, the challenges around mining, you know, huge capex, and obviously the polluting nature of all that heavy processing that goes on. How do we get to a stage where China dominates neodymium production? And what does that mean for the broader economies? Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a riddle that a lot of governments and, uh, and investors are currently trying to solve. I mean, if you look back at the, the history really over the decades, to be very blunt, China has charged billions of dollars into building up this supply chain where the rest of the world hasn't so much. There have been a lot of attempts around the world over the years by many different companies, different outfits to try and diversify that supply chain. But there is an enormously high, uh, I would say, burden to entry into it. And there are a huge number of risks in trying to set up and establish rare earth projects. I would say possibly more so than with most of the critical minerals. As you mentioned, we're looking at huge cost burdens. It's, it's really not unusual for new projects to require maybe a, a, as much as a billion dollars just to get going. And especially in those early stages where exploration companies are trying to do the due diligence on new resources, trying to prep the resource. There's a huge amount of time and cost that comes with all of that early stage work and a real lack of financing structures around the world to support companies as they go through it. They're also looking at a wait of several years to get their permitting in line, especially with those environmental challenges that everyone's worried about. So it's a huge burden to entry. And amidst all of that, you're looking at a very volatile price environment. Uh, rare earth prices are very China-centric because that's where so much of the supply chain and demand base is centered. So it's very difficult for companies trying to get into this space outside China to get some real visibility on their future earnings, which is obviously a big concern for investors. The rare earth supply chain, it's an unusually complicated jigsaw puzzle. With that big processing route that you've got to go through, each piece of that puzzle is very expensive and difficult to build. And you can fall into a real sort of chicken-egg conundrum. How do you justify investing in a new mine if you don't have a separation plant to then send it to other than China? And so on. How do you invest in a new separation plant if you don't have magnet manufacturers nearby? So if you're missing that next step in your value chain, either locally or with a friendly neighbor, you will probably have to just sell your product back to China, at which point we're not really diversifying. So it's a huge riddle to solve. A lot of companies have been trying to take a run at it for many years. Hopefully we are now starting to see the government support come in that can really create some changes. Yeah, and there's a, a growing recognition of the criticality of, of many of these minerals in in defence spending, you know, and as the world is somewhat deglobalizing, 
that's posing significant security risks. You've, we've seen recently the, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter production go on pause over concerns and supply chain around a particular Chinese magnet alloy. So it has real-world impacts, and as you say, it's a really challenging environment for the West to actually build its own supply capability. Let's stay on that price volatility. Like, how, how at the moment is there price discovery? How do you guys go about it, and why is it so, so challenging? Yeah, so at the moment, the rare earth market, as I said, very concentrated around China. For price reporting agencies like Argus, we're really focusing in on the spot market. And there we need to see uh, as much liquidity as possible in order to underpin price discovery. So Argus has been benchmarking rare earths for um, over 20 years for some of these products. For the most part, we see a lot of bilateral trade. Much of the volume is locked in under long-term contracts. These are largely very much physical markets. They're not typically exchange-based. We haven't yet seen those evolutions toward more hedging instruments, although there may be something to come there in the coming years. Price discovery for rare ads is a very human process. We depend on having really experienced journalists. Our lead analyst has been doing this for about 15 years, um, having a very, very close relationship and day-to-day dialogue with the industry. So we're typically looking at deals, bids, offers. In the absence of much liquidity, you'll also just be looking at market surveys and just getting a sense of the feel for the market. We're assessing products like neodymium on a daily basis. They are quite volatile. And so we need to keep close tabs on those prices. And yeah, we are seeing a, a huge amount more interest in these, uh, in these products and the valuation that we put on them as more investors try to examine that global supply chain. Yeah. And yet, despite that, in this story of a very clear picture about how demand in the future is going to be a straight line going upwards as a result of you know the energy transition as you've highlighted but also just the increasing use of technology across all and many applications why are you know, more broadly why why are we seeing low prices then in neodymium and other rare earth metals well at the moment the big story that's dominating a lot of these products is the economy so neodymium has been through an extremely volatile cycle just within the past 3 years really sort of stemmed from COVID-related disruptions back through 2020, 2021. We had some big Chinese stockpiling drives. But then really since around Q1 of 2022, the market's been in a pretty steady downtrend. Uh, I mean, at the moment today in the spot market, neodymium oxide, I think it's around $56 to $58 a kilo. FOB, that's down by about 95% since February, March of 2022. And that is primarily a story about gloomy demand, very, very heavily tied to the economy uh, within China, but then also globally. If we look at other countries that are major rare earth consumers like Japan, and of course in the Atlantic as well, it's a very, very similar story there. People are hoping that prices might now bottom out and maybe we're just going to waver around this level for a little while. But to be honest, we really don't know for the near term, because underlying demand is still very weak. And of course, if we look back to the early 2000s, you know, neodymium oxide was trading below $20 a kilo. So it is definitely possible for this market to fall lower, even if it's causing producers a lot of pain. So yeah, there's a real clash between narratives at the moment. In the near term, we're looking at a very gloomy price environment, heavily under pressure from the economic picture. 
But then in the long term, of course, it does all point to growth. It all points towards energy transition, decarbonisation, the electronics industry and growth. It is tough for investors to try and align these two very different narratives. Yeah, it seems to be the curse of rare earths, right? Um, yeah. You know, that, that's happened obviously a decade ago as well. Sort of, we had a similar price spike and, you know, a lot of narrative, but actually didn't materialise. And I guess in a world right today with higher interest rates, the timeframes uh, for, for payoffs have, have telescoped downwards. So, you know, you, you need those near-term prices to be robust. You, you mentioned about kind of the evolution of trading. I guess my question is, do we see the market becoming more transparent, interest from exchanges, and, and are we seeing a different group of traders starting to enter, you know, the typical metals traders as they want to get exposure to these critical minerals? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, as more and more Western companies, particularly more OEMs, downstream manufacturers take a greater interest in where their feedstocks are coming from, where their rare earths are coming from. There is a growing desire for transparency around the pricing, around the day-to-day trade, and more sophisticated instruments to help people do that. In terms of whether or not it's going to come, a lot of that really depends on how companies think about the evolution of this market. Um, At the moment, in order for new projects to get off the ground, very often they want to have as much security and as much control over their operation as they possibly can. And what that often implies is quite a high level of vertical integration and a lot of their trade flows being locked under big contracts, you know, long-term physical supply contracts. It makes a lot of sense for a business and for investors, but unfortunately, it starves the spot market of the trades and the liquidity that price reporting agencies need in order to build new price mechanisms, particularly outside China, which is where I think people are really hoping to see them over the coming years. So at Argus, we have a lot of dialogue with the industry where we try to talk about how rare earth prices are constructed, uh, what they're made of and to encourage emerging players into this space to really think about that and to really think about the balance of their order book, long-term versus spot, in how they're planning their business and their future earnings. Certainly with the energy transition as well, we're seeing more exchanges expressing interest in this. Uh, Obviously, battery metals, battery materials have been a, a huge point of interest increasingly in the past five years. And I think this interest around battery metals, in many ways, it's now starting to knock onto the rare earth space as well. Because really, if you think about an EV in particular, the story of battery metals and the story of rare earths, they really go hand in hand. You need such a powerful rare earth magnet in your motor, partly to support your battery. So these narratives go together. We're seeing more exchanges come knocking, wanting to know how we can support the development of more sophisticated hedging tools for rare earths. So I think it's really all to play for in the coming years, and we'll see what uh, what comes to fruition. Very good. So we'll move on to Gallium, which is similar in that the supply chain, once again, is absolutely dominated by China. But this, I guess, story sharpens um, how these rare earth minerals can become the centre of geopolitics and geo-rivalries and part of this broader tech war, which we, we had Chris Miller on talking about chip wars summer last year and i'd encourage listeners to go back and listen to that because it tells the story of semiconductors and and what's going on there and and how you know in his argument that's become the new oil 
Let's start again with what is gallium and, and how is it used and, and why should we know about it? Sure. So gallium, we typically class it as one of the minor metals. As with all the minor metals, it's extracted as a byproduct, typically from base metal refining. So for gallium, that's typically coming through the zinc and aluminium processing chains. Very often the raw material is bauxite itself. Gallium is mostly used to make electronics, um, as you're well aware. So you could find tiny volumes of it littered around your house in circuits, microwaves, LEDs, and so on. Um, but it's becoming particularly important because, as you say, it's used to make cutting-edge semiconductors. In particular, we're thinking about compound semiconductors like gallium nitride and gallium arsenide. So traditionally, I don't want to recap your, your previous podcast, but in the past, a, a sort of an older semiconductor would traditionally be made from pure elements like silicon. But nowadays, we're seeing really these different techs, these compound products move into the foreground. And with that, gallium becomes a really, really critical element for the electronics industry, for military, and therefore the political sensitivity is higher than it ever was before. Just a word on that supply chain dominance by China. The West used to have production, but essentially has, has lost it. Can you give us some insight into sort of how that came about? Was that a just simply more this story of kind of the desire of the West to offshore the, the pollution and the environmental impacts of these heavy industries? Or was it part of a, a broader determined plan from China to capture that value chain? Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a combination of a few things, really. And we have gotten ourselves into a very, very weak position with gallium. China now accounts for about 90 to 95 percent of global supply which means gallium is one of the most vulnerable and at-risk critical materials in that perspective. As you mentioned, it didn't always used to be that way. And I think that that's, there are a few different factors at play here. I think to an extent, if you look at the West in general, I think there's been a real lack of support and care for our metallurgical facilities in general. Over the past few decades, we've seen a lot of smelters, refineries, steelmakers as well fall victim to really difficult operating conditions, cost structures that just don't make sense in this part of the world. So I think there's a general story there that's been going on across the metallurgical industry. Furthermore, if we look at China specifically and we go back, you know, 20 years, in around 2000 to 2010, China put an enormous amount of energy into its aluminium production. And there was roughly a tenfold increase in China's output back then. And because gallium comes as a byproduct of aluminium, if you're dramatically increasing your aluminium output, then you get a massive spike in gallium production as well. So as China's gallium production rose sharply in the early 2000s, the jump in supply weighed on the price of gallium. It tipped the global market into a surplus and then depressed spot prices to a point where most of those producers outside China just couldn't stay afloat. And that's kind of where we've remained now. So even though we all know that we've got a huge vulnerability with our gallium supply, and we could theoretically increase production outside China, it's very difficult right now for companies to justify the economics. The numbers just don't make sense for them. Yeah. And then obviously in the wake of these chip wars and, and the US restricting the latest chips going to China, China responded in part with uh, export controls on gallium in August 2023. What was the backdrop to that and, and how did that distort prices? 
Well, I think depending on uh, which, uh, which government or which media you speak to, you might get a slightly different narrative. Yeah, so really these controls were brought in in the context of this tit-for-tat that's been going on between China and the US over the past three years, really, the so-called tech war, uh, as people term it. And not long before China implemented the export controls, the US had escalated restrictions on exports of semiconductor technologies in order to try and uh, in some way stymie China's own industry development on that front. So it's really caught up in this uh, geopolitical tension, which is still not resolved, uh, still ongoing. I think it did cause a little bit of shock to the market that we saw gallium and germanium affected so directly. We're very used to watching these two governments taking shots at each other through technology. But this was a real shift in the tone that they actually went for the metals themselves. And and adding a, a further complexity to this story of trying to build independent supply chains from China for how to to start these investing in these supply chains when they are subject to such volatile policies and outcomes as a result of of these tech wars and and other sources of geopolitical instability. I mean, it really does make a challenge. What what happened to the price of, of gallium in the wake of these export controls? Yeah, well, the real drama manifested in the, uh, the Atlantic markets, probably unsurprisingly. So when those export controls were announced in July, the market had a little bit of time through till August to try and assess, do a bit of stockpiling and anticipation. Uh, I must admit, when the export controls were first announced, a lot of traders and buyers outside China, they weren't too worried, to be honest because China has had export controls in place on various metals for some time. So they thought, well, this is just another level to it. It's a little bit concerning, but we can navigate it. But then what played out, I think, caused a lot more concern. People started applying for the licenses, and for quite a long time, the licenses weren't granted. European prices for gallium rocketed, and they are still at their highest level now since around 2012. We're hearing around $500 to $600 a kilo on a SIF basis in Europe. And to put that in context, Europe was hovering around the $300 mark a year ago. We are now seeing a bit more material come out of China and a few more of those export licenses granted. There was a distinct jump in China's gallium exports in December, which is possibly going to give a bit more confidence back to the European market. But really, we need to see inventories build and confidence restored in Europe and the US in order for those inflated prices to come down a bit. Meanwhile, in China, it's really been a very different story. When the export controls were first announced last year, the Chinese gallium price actually fell because fundamentally gallium is a very oversupplied market right now. Demand has been under pressure in China, tied to macroeconomics and so on. And China is also bringing more production capacity online. So while Europe rocketed, China actually drifted lower. Now, as exports have gotten moving again, we are seeing Chinese exporters targeting higher prices again, pushing to narrow that huge spread that's opened up between China and the Atlantic markets. As the China's now around maybe $340 to $350 a kilo on an FOB basis. But yeah, as you say, enormous volatility in these markets when the geopolitics kick off. And that can be a huge challenge for investors and new production capacity. And who's trading? gallium and has that makeup of participants changed you know with the narrative of the the broader story we're talking about here in digitization the energy transition uh, you know and so forth 
Yeah, great question. The majority of gallium changes hands bilaterally. Uh, you have a lot of long-term contracts, major volumes, which get locked in directly between producers and end users. But traders do play a really important role. I think potentially more important within these strategically sensitive minerals than in some other areas. If I look within Europe and within the US, for example, um, there are quite a few specialized traders uh, that are very expert in these sorts of niche minor metals, as it were. They can be particularly important if the end use application has a potential military sensitivity. It could be very difficult, for example, for a US chip maker to directly go shopping in China for a strategically sensitive mineral. So the traders play a really important role as the middlemen. They really help to smooth out some of these supply chains. And uh, it's been very interesting talking to them through all of this geopolitical chaos and tension of the past few months. A lot of traders have been alarmed at how difficult it's been to navigate the export controls. Some of them might say they've been a little bit burned. And I think one of the questions for the longer term is whether these sorts of geopolitical events, these export controls, these sudden new measures that can come in might deter some of the traditional traders from being involved. If you remove some of those middlemen from these sensitive supply chains, it might get a bit more difficult for end users in America, for example, to access a politically sensitive metal like gallium from China. Yeah, yeah, which is a, you know, it's a catch-22, isn't it? In some ways, you, you want, uh, you know, these are, these are sensitive metals. They are part of a broader geopolitical competition. But at the same time, introducing these types of volatile scenarios into these markets, and the same things happening across energy and, and ags as well as metals, is a deterrence to the, to the traders, which make the, the markets efficient and, and, and more transparent. Absolutely. And those traders are also really important for price discovery and price formation especially when we're focusing so much on spot trade as PRAs do with price indexes. Those traders, all of these characters that you get in the middle of the supply chain, they're enormously important in generating efficient and well-functioning uh, markets. And who is trading? Are these relatively small independent operators that are specialised on gallium, for example, or, or are these the large major houses? Uh, I would say something in between. They are often... I would say specialized trading firms for a whole host of what we could call critical minerals. We don't see the major big trading houses so involved in these specific metals. I think they do require a certain level of focus and expertise. Very often with the minor metals and the rare earths across all the different applications, it can be quite tricky sometimes to think of these as true commodities. The grades can be very specialized. The forms can be very specialized. And so what we have is several companies, trading firms that just become really expert in understanding these niches, those quirks, all those different characteristics to these specific minor metals. Which don't necessarily have the scale to weather these, these incredibly volatile events. Absolutely correct. Sometimes the margins can be very, very thin. And that is another challenge that we've seen flagged in the past year for rare earths and also for some of these minor metals as they're crossing the ocean and dealing with quite a gloomy economic environment lately. It can be quite tricky to get those margins to line up and make sense. 
So yeah, you've really got to know what you're doing to be in this game. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Okay, let's let's move on to our third and final, in this case, minor metal, but part of this broader critical metals and minerals suite, which is hafnium, which you've chosen as a story of how technological innovation and new new applications can take a, a relatively obscure metal and 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 cast a very rosy and and, and growing future for it. Absolutely. I think before I, um, I mean, I've been with Argus for a bit over 10 years now, and I'm sure that before I came to Argus, I'd never heard of hafnium. It really is one of those metals that sits right in the niche. It is classed as another minor metal, similar to gallium. And it really is, I would say, a niche within a niche. In order to get most minor metals, you're essentially looking at a byproduct of base metal refining. Well, hafnium is even more niche than that. In order to make hafnium, you have to first focus on making zirconium. You have to refine around 50 tonnes worth of zirconium metal in order to get just one tonne of hafnium. So it really is a niche within a niche, but its profile has rocketed, I would say, within the past two years. We often think of hafnium as one of the high temperature minor metals, which means it can be used to make super alloys, which go into the aerospace and oil and gas industries. But it also goes into nuclear power plants. It's useful for neutron absorption in the control rods in a nuclear plant. And it's also increasingly being used by the electronics industry to make certain types of semiconductor. We're particularly seeing US chip makers using more and more hafnium to enhance things like memory cards. So overall, globally, we're seeing the emergence of new technologies and applications taking off for hafnium which is expanding demand for the long term, and supply is really struggling to keep up with it. But in, in contrast to the other two and many of the other metals in this suite, actually this is, this is a, the, the West dominates the supply chain for, for hafnium. It does. We're so used to talking about China being the major player for most of the rare earths and minor metals. Uh, hafnium has quite a different profile. The largest suppliers by country are the US and France. We do typically get a bit coming out from Russia and then, of course, China as well. But it really is a different sort of balance that we've got going on there compared to the others. Yeah. And let's talk about, so obviously the last couple of years, you've already highlighted that this is very much entered the, the lexicon and the, uh, the books of uh, various of these traders. What's gone on with prices and, and can you link that to the broader economy and these uses? Absolutely. Well, I think in order to understand what's happened with prices, we have to go back maybe to about 2020 and, uh, and what was happening with COVID. So if we think traditionally Hafnium has had maybe two major end use sectors, aerospace, well, aerospace pretty much had to go into hibernation. During COVID lockdowns, fleets were grounded and therefore a lot of the maintenance and manufacturing work around aerospace largely just went on standby. So all of those hafnium buyers in the aerospace industry pretty much went into hibernation. Meanwhile, everyone was being sent home on lockdowns and people were buying more and more electronics than ever before. 
So demand for hafnium from the consumer electronics industry was going up and up and up. And it was being compounded by technological advances. So overall, we had the electronics buyers coming into the market buying lots and lots of hafnium. Then all of a sudden, we move into 2021. The aerospace industry starts waking up again. COVID lockdown started to ease. You suddenly had the aerospace industry, which has enormous buying power for pretty much all the metals, coming back in and finding that there really wasn't much hafnium available. And what's really gone on now is a sort of race to the top. So for this market, because it's not a China-centric market, the core benchmark for pricing is the Argus Rotterdam price. That hit a record high of almost $7,000 a kilo in Q3 of last year. And bear in mind that hafnium was trading well below $1,000 a kilo for years prior to that. The price has absolutely rocketed as everyone started competing for more and more material. The spot market has softened a little bit since then. We're now seeing deals done a bit over $5,000 a kilo in Rotterdam, but these are still extraordinary levels. And of course, in the US, you can often be paying even more than that because of duties that the US has in place on certain origins of metal. So really, this is a very, very hot market. We've seen a little bit of softening of prices just in the past few months, but really, this is a supply squeeze from which there is no clear way out. Yeah. And and I guess in contrast to the other two metals, there's a lot more visibility on the supply chain. There's less overcapacity because you don't have the same economics at play and so forth. And so this is a true squeeze of supply rather than a temporary dislocation. Is that a fair statement? And that itself, I guess, is poses challenges if that is the case, because it's all of these have quite a long lag in terms of creating new production. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've got a few different factors causing a challenge here. For one thing, as I mentioned before, you've got to produce around 50 tonnes of zirconium to get just one tonne of hafnium. So that means that even with a very high hafnium price, it's not always economically attractive for a producer to increase zirconium output just for the sake of the hafnium. So it's really tricky. You've got to sort of persuade one section of the metal market to do something almost to support hafnium when they don't always go hand in hand. You're also looking at technology here. The technology to separate hafnium from zirconium is not necessarily available everywhere. Um, There are only maybe three or four companies with that capability in China. Some, of course, in Europe, in the US, but overall, this is really quite a niche specialism. Niche technologies is not easy to scale it up rapidly. We do see a bit more production capacity planned in France for both hafnium and zirconium alloys. But as you say, any production expansions, and particularly anything that's coming from scratch, can have a very, very long lead time. So this is not a problem that you can solve overnight. Yeah, and it's also interesting, again, looking at your notes on this, it seems the the, the rapid rise of, of hafnium as a, as a key metal has somewhat been, become a blind spot for, for policymaking in the West as well. Can you talk to that a little bit and what the consequences of that are? Yeah, well, we've seen in the past few years um, a definite escalation in how governments are trying to engage with critical minerals. And for the most part, it's quite encouraging. You see it across, you know, Australia, Asia, Europe, the US. There's been a lot of talk amongst policymakers, critical mineral lists and strategies. We've had industrial policies like the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. 
all sorts of things going on. But I think Hafnium really demonstrates how many blind spots there can also be within these policies. If you look at these critical mineral lists that governments often draw up, um, you won't always see Hafnium on there. The UK last year revised its list and Hafnium was missing. And a lot of people from within the metal markets were quite confounded by that because they thought, well, my goodness, if Hafnium is not classed as a vulnerable so-called critical mineral, what is? It is something that is absolutely intrinsic to traditional industry, but also modern future-looking industries. And we clearly don't have a strong enough supply chain. So yeah, I, th I think it really demonstrates how much more is needed in order to add real depths and muscle and impact to a lot of government policies around critical minerals and strengthening supply chains. Yeah. Yeah. I guess when you look back across these three examples in the market more broadly, they're all defined by these sort of same characteristics, right, which is a very concentrated supply chain. The cha the pure challenges of economics around just the, the volumes produced in, and, and, and traded, and now they're becoming increasingly part of geopolitics and deglobalization. Well, I guess as you, as you look forward over the coming year or two, what do you see as the major narratives emerging? Is it just more volatility of this type? Or you know, are we going to start seeing real concerted efforts, particularly in the West, to invest in these supply chains? I think we're going to see a little bit of both. And to an extent, that volatility, which I do think is going to continue, is a major challenge for diversifying those supply chains. And we're going to need investors and governments that have the confidence to ride that out because prices for all commodities, including these metals, they go up, they go down, and you've got to be willing to ride out the cycles and not get deterred from making major investments. Um, I do think that the shift in political tone is important. I do think it's significant. We're also seeing OEMs, automakers, massive manufacturers from within the, the aerospace supply chain as well. We're seeing a lot of these very powerful consumers of metals who often have very deep pockets take a bigger interest in looking after their supply chains. And that's also very helpful for developing new projects and building out the projects outside China. We're seeing automakers, for example, striking up early stage supply deals with uh, emerging producers of battery metals, rare earths, and so on. All of that really helps to instill a bit more confidence in these projects and attract other investors. So there is definitely a change in the climate. And I do think that over the next 10, 15 years, we will see the supply chains diversify a bit more. With that, we're also going to see price mechanisms diversify more. And I think a bit more scope for hedging mechanisms, maybe exchanges getting involved in more metals. But it is going to take a lot of nerve, a lot of political will, and a lot of international teamwork and coordination as well. Yeah, and not least the the permitting piece as well. For you know, many of these things devolve down to local government and the willingness of people to have uh, you know these uh, extractive industries and heavy processing in their in their backyard, so to speak. So it's a complex picture. Well, Ellie, it's been absolutely fabulous having you on. Firstly, I hope we can have you on again to talk about these markets and more in the future. And you know, thanks for your insight. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, 
visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.